0: Book One, Chapters Five and Six of The Blue Lagoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pratzeles. The Blue Lagoon by H. Devere Stagpoole. Chapter Five. Voices heard in the mist. The sun became fainter still and vanished. Though the air round the dinghy seemed quite clear, the oncoming boats were hazy and dim and that part of the horizon that had been fairly clear was now blotted out. The long-boat was leading by a good way. When she was within hailing distance the captain's voice came, "'Dingy ahoy! Ahoy! Fetch alongside here!' The long-boat ceased rowing to wait for the quarter-boat that was slowly creeping up. She was a heavy boat to pull at all times and now she was overloaded. The wrath of Captain Lafarge with Paddy Button for the way he had stampeded the crew was profound, but he had not time to give vent to it. "'Here, get aboard us, Mr Lestrange,' said he when the dinghy was alongside. We have room for one. Mrs Stannard is in the quarter-boat, and it's overcrowded. She's better aboard the dinghy, for she can look after the kids come hurry up the smother is coming down on us fast ahoy to the quarter-boat hurry up hurry up the quarter-boat had suddenly vanished mr lestrange climbed into the longboat paddy pushed the dinghy a few yards away with the tip of a scull and then lay on his oars waiting ahoy ahoy cried lafarge Ahoy!" came from the fog-bank. Next moment the long-boat and the dinghy vanished from each other's sight. The great fog-bank had taken them. Now a couple of strokes of the port's scull would have brought Mr. Button alongside the long-boat. So close was he. But the quarter-boat was in his mind, or rather imagination, so what must he do but take three powerful strokes? in the direction in which he fancied the quarter-boat to be. The rest was voices. "'Dingy, ahoy! Ahoy! Ahoy!' "'Don't be shouting together, or I'll not know which way to pull. Quarter-boat ahoy! Where is ye's?' Port your helm!' Ay oye!' Putting his helm, so to speak, to starboard. I'll be wid' in one minute." Two or three minutes hard-pulling. Ahoy! Much more faint. What do you mean rowing away from me? A dozen strokes. Ahoy! Fainter still. Mr. Button rested on his oars. Devil mend em! I believe that was the long-boat shouting. He took to his oars again, and pulled vigorously. "'Paddy,' came Dick's small voice, apparently from nowhere, "'where are we now?' "'Sure, we're in a fog. Where else would we be? Don't you be afeard?' "'I ain't afeard, but Em's shiverin.' "'Give her me coat,' said the oarsman, resting on his oars and taking it off. "'Wrap it round her, and when it's round her We'll all let one big halloo together. There's an old shawl somewhere in the boat, but I can't be looking after for it now." He held out the coat, and an almost invisible hand took it. At the same moment, a tremulous report shook the sea and sky. "'There she goes,' said Mr. Button, and me old fiddle and all. Don't be frightened, children. It's only a gun they're firing for diversion. Now we're all hello together. Are you ready?" Ay, ay," said Dick, who was a picker-up of sea-terms. "'Hallo!' yelled Pat. "'Hallo! Hello!' piped Dick and Emmeline. A faint reply came, but from where it was difficult to say. The old man rowed a few strokes, and then paused on his oars. So still was the surface of the sea that the chuckling of the water on the boat's bow as he drove forward under the impetus of the last powerful stroke could be heard distinctly. It died out as she lost way, and silence closed round them like a ring. The light from above— A light that seemed to come through a vast scuttle of deeply muffed glass, faint as it was, almost to extinction, still varied as the little boat floated through the strata of the mist. A great sea-fog is not homogeneous. Its density varies. It is honeycombed with streets. It has its caves of clear air its cliffs of solid vapour all shifting and changing place with the subtlety of legimen. It has also this wizard peculiarity that it grows with the sinking of the sun and the approach of darkness. The sun, could they have seen it, was now leaving the horizon. They called again, then they waited, but there was no response. "'There's no use bawling like bulls to chaps that's deaf as adders,' said the old sailor, shipping his oars. Immediately upon which declaration he gave another shout, with the same result as far as eliciting a reply. "'Mr. Button,' came Emmeline's voice. "'What is it, honey?' "'I'm—'afraid—' "'You wait one minute till I find the shawl. Here it is, by the same token, and I'll wrap you up in it." He crept cautiously aft to the stern-sheets, and took Emmeline in his arms. "'Don't want the shawl?' said Emmeline. "'I'm not so much afraid in your coat.' The rough tobacco-smelling old coat gave her courage somehow. Well then, thin. Keep it on. Dickie, are you cold?' I've got into Daddy's great-coat. He left it behind him." "'Well, then, I'll put the shawl round me own shoulders, for it's cold I am. Are you hungry, childer?' "'No,' said Dick. "'But I'm dreadful—higher!' "'Sleepy, is it. Well, down you get in the bottom of the boat. And here's the shawl for a pillar. I'll be rowing again in a minute to keep myself warm.' he buttoned the top button of the coat i'm all right murmured emmeline in a dreamy voice shut your eyes tight replied mr button or billy winker will be dredging sand in them It was a tag of the old nursery folk-song they sing in the hovels of the acle coast, fixed in his memory, along with the rain, the wind, and the smell of the burning turf, and the grunting of the pig, and the nickety-knock of a rocking cradle. "'She's off,' murmured Mr. Button to himself, as the form in his arms relaxed. Then he laid her gently down beside Dick. He shifted forward, moving like a crab. Then he put his hand to his pocket for his pipe and tobacco and tinder-box. They were in his coat-pocket, but Emmeline was in his coat. To search for them would be to awaken her. The darkness of night was now adding itself to the blindness of the fog. The Osman could not see even the thole-pins. He sat adrift, mind and body. He was, to use his own expression, mothered—haunted by the mist, tormented by shapes. It was just in a fog like this that the merrows could be heard disporting in Dunbeg Bay and off the Acol coast, sporting and laughing and hallooing through the mist to lead unfortunate fishermen astray. Merrows are not altogether evil, but they have green hair and teeth, fish's tails and fins for arms, and to hear them walloping in the water around you like salmon, and you alone in a small boat, with the dread of one coming floundering on board, is enough to turn a man's hair grey. For a moment he thought of awakening the children to keep him company but he was ashamed. Then he took to the sculls again, and rowed by the feel of the water. The creak of the oars was like a companion's voice. The exercise lulled his fears. Now and again, forgetful of the sleeping children, he gave a halloo, and paused to listen. But no answer came. Then he continued rowing. long steady, laborious strokes, each taking him further and further from the boats, that he was never destined to sight again. End of chapter five. CHAPTER six Dawn on a Wide Wide Sea Is it asleep, I've been, said mister Button, suddenly awakening with a start. He had shipped his oars for just a minute's rest, He must have slept for hours, for now, behold, a warm, gentle wind was blowing, the moon was shining, and the fog was gone. "'Is it dreaming I've been?' continued the awakened one. "'Where am I at all at all? Ah, Musha, sure, here I am. Ah, Wirra Wirra! I dreamt I'd gone asleep on the main-hatch, and the ship was blown up with powder. And it's all come true!' "'Mr. Button,' came a small voice from the stern-sheets, Emmeline's. "'What is it, honey?' "'Where are we now?' "'Sure, we're afloat on the sea, Akushla. Where else would we be?' "'Where's Uncle?' He's has been there in the long-boat. He'll be after us in a minute.' "'I want a drink.' He filled a tin pannikin that was by the beaker of water, and gave her a drink. Then he took his pipe and tobacco from his coat pocket. She almost immediately fell asleep again beside Dick, who had not stirred or moved, and the old sailor, standing up and steadying himself, cast his eyes round the horizon. Not a sign of sail or boat was there on all the moonlit sea. From the low elevation of an open boat one has a very small horizon and in the vague world of moonlight somewhere round about it was possible that the boats might be near enough to show up at daybreak. But open boats a few miles apart may be separated by long leagues in the course of a few hours. Nothing is more mysterious than the currents of the sea. The sea is an ocean of rivers, some swiftly flowing, some slow and a league from where you are drifting, at the rate of a mile an hour, another boat may be drifting too." A slight warm breeze was frosting the water, blending moonshine and star-shimmer. The ocean lay like a lake, yet the nearest mainland was perhaps a thousand miles away. The thoughts of youth may be long, long thoughts. But not longer than the thoughts of this old sailor-man smoking his pipe under the stars. Thoughts as long as the world is round, blazing bar-rooms in Calao, harbours over whose oily surfaces the sandpans slipped like water-beetles, the lights of Macao, the docks of London. Scarcely ever a sea-picture, pure and simple. For why should an old seaman care to think about the sea, where life is all into the forecastle and out again, where one voyage blends and jumbles with another, where after forty-five years of reefing topsails you can't well remember off which ship it was that Jack Rafferty fell overboard, or who it was killed who in the forecastle of what, though you can still see, as in a mirror darkly, the fight and the bloody face over which a man is holding a kerosene lamp. I doubt if Paddy Button could have told you the name of the first ship he ever sailed in. If you had asked him he would probably have replied,—'I disremember. It was to the Baltic, and cruel cold weather, and I was seasick till I ne'er brought me boats up, and it was oh for old Ireland and I was crying all the time, and the captain drumming me back with a rope's end to the tune of it. But the name of the hooker—I disremember—bad luck to her, whoever she was." So he sat smoking his pipe, whilst the candles of heaven burned above him, and calling to mind roaring drunken scenes, and palm-shadowed harbours, and the men and the women he had known. Such men and such women, the derelicts of the earth and the ocean! And he nodded off to sleep again, and when he awoke the moon had gone. Now in the eastern sky might have been seen a pale fan of light, vague as the wing of an ephemera. It vanished and changed back to darkness. Presently, and almost at a stroke, a pencil of fire ruled a line along the eastern horizon, and the eastern sky became more beautiful than a rose-leaf plucked in May. The line of fire contracted into one increasing spot- the rim of the rising sun, as the light increased, the sky above became of a blue impossible to imagine unless seen a wan blue yet living and sparkling, as if born of the impalpable dust of sapphires. Then the whole sea flashed like the harp of Apollo, touched by the fingers of the god. The light was music to the soul. It was day. "'Daddy!' suddenly cried Dick, sitting up in the sunlight and rubbing his eyes with his open palms. "'Where are we?' "'All right, Dicky, me son cried the old sailor, who had been standing up, casting his eyes round, in a vain endeavour to sight the boats. "'Your daddy's as safe as if he was in heaven. He'll be with us in a minute, and bring another ship along with him. So you're awake, are you, Emmeline?' Emmeline, sitting in the old pilot-coat, nodded in reply, without speaking. Another child might have supplemented Dick's inquiries as to her uncle by questions of her own, but she did not. Did she guess that there was some subterfuge in Mr. Button's answer, and that things were different from what he was making them out to be? Who can tell? She was wearing an old cap of Dick's which Mrs. Stannard, in the hurry and confusion, had popped on her head. It was pushed to one side, and she made a quaint enough little figure as she sat up in the early morning brightness, dressed in the old salt-stained coat beside Dick, whose straw hat was somewhere in the bottom of the boat, and whose auburn locks were blowing in the faint breeze. "'Haroo!' cried Dick, looking around at the blue and sparkling water, and banging with a stretcher on the bottom of the boat. I'm going to be a sailor, aren't I, Paddy? You'll let me sail the boat, won't you, Paddy, and show me how to row?" "'Easy does it,' said Paddy, taking hold of the child. "'I haven't a sponge or towel, but I'll just wash your face in cold water, and leave you to dry the sun.' He filled the baling-tin with sea-water. "'I don't want to wash,' shouted Dick. "'Stick your face into the water in the tin,' commanded Paddy. "'You wouldn't be going about the place with your face like a soot-bag, would you?' "'Stick yours in,' commanded the other. Mr. Button did so, and made a hub-bubbling noise in the water. Then he lifted a wet and streaming face, and flung the contents of the bailing tin overboard. "'Now you've lost your chance,' said this arch-nursery strategist. All the water's gone." "'There's more in the sea.' "'There's no more to wash with. Not till to-morrow. The fishes don't allow it.' "'I want to wash,' grumbled Dick. "'I want to stick my face in the tin, same as you did. Sides, Em hasn't washed.' "'I don't mind,' murmured Emmeline. "'Well, then.' said Mr. Button, as if making a sudden resolve, I'll ask the sharks. He leaned over the boat's side, his face close to the surface of the water. "'Hullo there!' he shouted, and then bent his head sideways to listen. The children also looked over the side, deeply interested. "'Hullo there! Are you asleep? Oh, there you are! Here's a spalpeen with a dirty face, and full to wash it. May I take a balin tin of—' Ah, thank your Honour, thank your Honour. Good day to you, and my respects.' "'What did the shark say, Mr. Button?' asked Emmeline. He said, "'Take a balfull, and welcome, Mr. Button. And it's wishful I am I had a drop o' the creature to offer you this fine mornin'. Then he popped his head under his fin, and went to sleep again. Leastwise I heard him snore. Emmeline nearly always Mr. Buttoned her friend. Sometimes she called him Mr. Paddy. As for Dick, it was always Paddy, pure and simple. Children have etiquettes of their own. It must often strike landsmen and landswomen that the most terrible experience when cast away at sea in an open boat is the total absence of privacy it seems an outrage on decency on the part of Providence to herd people together so. But whoever has gone through the experience will bear me out that in great moments of life like this the human mind enlarges, and things that would shock us ashore are as nothing out there, face to face with eternity. If so with grown-up people, How much more so with this old shellback and his two charges! And indeed Mr Button was a person who called a spade a spade, had no more conventions than a walrus, and looked after his two charges just as a nursemaid might look after her charges, or a walrus after its young. There was a large bag of biscuits in the boat, and some tin stuff, mostly sardines. I have known a sailor to open a box of sardines with a tin-tack. He was in prison, the sardines had been smuggled into him, and he had no can-opener, only his genius, and a tin-tack. Paddy had a jackknife, however, and in a marvellously short time a box of sardines was opened and placed in the stern-sheets beside some biscuits. These with some water and Emmeline's tangerine orange which she produced and added to the common store, formed the feast, and they fell to. When they had finished the remains were put carefully away, and they proceeded to step the tiny mast. The sailor, when the mast was in its place, stood for a moment resting his hand on it, and gazing round him over the vast and voiceless blue. The Pacific has three blues—the blue of morning, the blue of midday, And the blue of evening but the blue of morning is the happiest the happiest thing in colour sparkling vague new-born the blue of heaven and youth what are you looking for paddy asked dick seagulls replied the prevaricator then to himself not a sign or sound of em musha musha Which way will I steer—north, south, east, or west? It's all one, for if I steer to the east they may be in the west, and if I steer to the west they may be in the east. And I can't steer to the west, for I'd be steering right into the wind's eye. East it is—I'll make a soldier's wind of it, and thrust to chance." He set the sail, and came aft with the sheet. Then he shifted the rudder, lit a pipe, leaned luxuriously back, and gave the bellying sail to the gentle breeze. It was part of his profession, part of his nature, that, steering maybe straight towards death by starvation and thirst, he was unconcerned as if he was taking the children for a summer's sail. His imagination dealt little with the future almost entirely influenced by his immediate surroundings, it could conjure up no fears from the scene now before it. The children were the same. Never was there a happier starting, more joy in a little boat. During breakfast the seaman had given his charges to understand that if Dick did not meet his father and Emmeline her uncle in a while or two it was because he had gone on board a ship, and he'd be along presently. The terror of their position was as deeply veiled from them as eternity is veiled from you or me. The Pacific was still bound by one of those glacial calms that can only occur when the sea has been free from storms for a vast extent of its surface, for a hurricane down by the horn will send its swell and disturbance beyond the Marquesas. Dubois, in his table of amplitudes, points out that more than half the sea disturbances at any given space are caused not by the wind but by storms at a great distance. But the sleep of the Pacific is only apparent. This placid lake, over which the dinghy was pursuing the running ripple, was heaving to an imperceptible swell, and breaking on the shores of the low archipelago, and the Marquesas in foam and thunder. Emmeline's rag-doll was a shocking affair from a hygienic or artistic standpoint. Its face was just inked on. It had no features, no arms. Yet not for all the dolls in the world would she have exchanged this filthy and nearly formless thing. It was a fetish. She sat nursing it on one side of the helmsman, whilst Dick on the other side hung his nose over the water on the lookout for fish. Why do you smoke, Mr. Button? asked Emmeline, who had been watching her friend for some time in silence. "Mm, To ease me troubles, replied Paddy. He was leaning back with one eye shut and the other fixed on the luff of the sail. He was in his element, nothing to do but steer and smoke, warmed by the sun, and cooled by the breeze. A landsman would have been half-demented in his condition. Many a sailor would have been taciturn and surly, on the lookout for sails, and alternately damning his soul and praying to his God. Paddy smoked. whoo cried Dick. Look, Paddy!" An albacore a few cables length to port had taken a flying leap from the flashing sea Turned a complete somersault and vanished. It's an albacore taking a buck leap. Hundreds I've seen before this. He's been chased. What's chasing him, Paddy? What's chasing him? Why, what else but the gibbly Gobliums? Before Dick could inquire as to the personal appearance and habits of the latter, a shoal of silver arrowheads passed the boat and flitted into the water with a hissing sound. Dems flying fish. What are you saying? Fish can't fly. Where's the eyes in your head?" "'Are the gibliums chasing them too?' asked Emmeline, fearfully. "'No, tis the billy Baloo's that's after them. Don't be asking me any more questions now, or I'll be telling you lies in a minute." Emmeline, it will be remembered had brought a small parcel with her done up in a little shawl it was under the boat seat and every now and then she would stoop down to see if it was safe End of chapter six